Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. Artificial intelligence has the potential to enrich our lives, but it also can drive people apart and cause tremendous harm. Olaf Grote, a professor at Hult International Business School and CEO of the Cambrian Group, explores how this technology is reshaping societies in his new book, Solomon's Code, Humanity in a World of Thinking Machines. He co-authored the volume with Mark Nitzberg, who heads the UC Berkeley Center for Human-Compatible Artificial Intelligence. In this episode of Tell Me More, Grote, an alumnus of Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, talks with Bhaskar Chakravorty, Dean of Global Business at the Fletcher School, about artificial intelligence, both its promise and its perils. Let's listen in. Your book is called Solomon's Code. Could you decode the title? I'd be, yeah, I'd be happy to, Bhaskar. So uh, King Solomon was a biblical figure who was known for um, making very smart, very intelligent, and often wise decisions and getting to great wealth, but then also making some decisions that were tricky uh, and problematic and in the process losing his wealth and losing his country or his son's country, as it were. And we're saying in the book that we ought to be smart, we ought to be wise, and we ought to think ahead about the kinds of problems that we could be generating in this new data-driven economy. Mm -hmm. So we do not want to end up like King Solomon, uh, but rather get wise ahead of time and exercise some foresight so that we don't go into the same pitfalls and make the same mistakes. That was the meaning of the title. What I really like about your book is you, you, you help us think simultaneously about the algorithmic future and uh, the humanist future. And in many ways, the second part of your title, humanity in a world of thinking machines, uh, underscores uh, that, that theme in your book. Could you say a little bit more about humanity and thinking machines? Is there a tension between the two? Can the two live and coexist simultaneously? So our relationships are changing based on technology. Our social glue is changing. How we look at other groups in society other than the ones that we belong to is changing thanks to smarter and smarter algorithms that figure out who we are and who they are and then play us into these opposite camps. All of those things are at once um, very satisfying because these algorithms have figured out who we are and they play to our sense of satisfaction. And they're also problematic because they tell us, well, you and your satisfaction, your worldview are different from these people over in this other corner that are really not very likable to you. And so it keeps feeding you news in these different camps that drift you and divide you uh, ever further. And those are very destructive patterns, right? Now, uh, in essence, what I'm saying is technology uh, has two sides to it. There is a wonderful positive transformational side. You can enrich lives. You can make people see things they haven't seen before. Uh, you can use technology for learning, for education, for healthcare. Um, for greater convenience, and you can use technology to drive people apart and do harm. And so the book is essentially about the potential as well as the pitfalls. And those two are currently unfolding quite dramatically. What's the one, I'm sure there are many examples, but one uh, example of potential that excites you the most, that makes you feel most optimistic about how thinking machines are encroaching on our lives? And then the second part of this question would be, what's the one pitfall that worries you the most, Olaf? 
Yeah. So they are quite provocative, uh, positively provocative uh, ventures in the healthcare field. We, for the, for the book, interviewed about 100 entrepreneurs, policymakers, uh, 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 experts, uh, academics, uh, media professionals, and unearthed uh, some, some wonderful uh, ventures, such as BrainQ in Israel. BrainQ in Israel has developed AI algorithms, uh, um, machine learning algorithms, that can figure out um, which uh, nodes in the brain are no longer firing at each other and neurons no longer firing at each other thereby decapacitating human beings that can no longer, let's say, use a limb as they used to because these neurons aren't firing. Mm. They I can definitely like the address of that company from you after we're done with this interview. Yes. I can feel so many parts <laughs> of my brain that have stopped functioning. Right? Yeah, right. I need which, to figure out which ones are still functioning. Exactly. And it leads you down this path of asking, you know, I mean, first of all, how can I get that? Uh, because you feel the potential for human enhancement. Mm. Uh, and, and yet you can easily see how that's also problematic. Who has access to it? People like you and me who are, you know, I'd say compared to most of the rest of the world, reasonably privileged. Uh, or, uh, or is it really all of humanity that will be, uh, that will be taking advantage of these technologies? Um, it's wonderfully, uh, wonderfully promising for people with trauma because they can regain physical function, cognitive function. But it does have this darker side. Can you imagine hackers now hacking into these algorithms that will, uh, that will then allow them to change these wavelengths and manipulate human brain functioning? So there's lots and lots of questions here that are both sociological, ethical, and security, uh, uh, you know, safety uh, related in nature. So that's, that's one. There are other medical technologies that are very promising, uh, such as uh, a venture out of Stanford University that enables doctors who are uh, consulting with uh, patients that, are, that either suffer from depression or Alzheimer's or things of that, that nature to discern uh, slight deviations in patterns in how they swipe screens or type on virtual keyboards to then see if somebody is about to relapse into another phase of depression or drug addiction and intervene before they can do harm to themselves. That, too, is incredibly promising. And as you can imagine, if that's not safeguarded uh, for privacy reasons, security reasons, can also wreak havoc on people's lives. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of those types of applications. So there are good and bad aspects of you know, having that kind of technology surrounding us. And there's been a lot of discussion lately about uh, the role of the state in having access to this kind of mm -hmm. data and what that might mean to the future of human freedoms? And uh, is it uh, uh, opening the door to state overreach? And this specifically relates to um, some issues that are now uh, coming to the fore forefront about China and uh, China's plan to have a social credit score for every individual. Is this an area that you worry about, sort of having a state, uh, an all-powerful state, having access to this kind of information? And then the second part of the question is, do you worry about, uh, instead of the state, um, private actors? You know, combination of uh, the, the technology giants having this kind of information in liberal democracies, uh, potentially sort of having similar uh, state of overreach. Yeah, no, I definitely worry about this, Bhaskar, and it's the, it's the shadow side of the bright side, which is that we... We want the uh, global digital platforms to know as well to make life more convenient, to enable us to have one-stop shopping. You subscribe once, 
they gather data, they understand who you are and what you want, and they serve that up. And that's tremendously enriching and, and convenient. And we can do things today that we could never do before. Think Just think about car sharing and, and all the wonderful things that Amazon and others do. And the same goes for some of the Chinese players. And yet there is a tremendous power that comes with that kind of knowledge that I think needs to be discussed. And it is slowly but steadily coming uh, to the fore. Uh, so I am worried about these large digital corporations on both sides of the Pacific. Um, uh, I would be worried about European corporations if there were any, but there aren't any uh, other than maybe SAP, and that's really B2B. So it's primarily about the Chinese Spotify. and the American. Yeah, Spotify, that's right. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and if that grows, then certainly it would, it would fall into the same category. So I am worried about that because we are seeing a lack of uh, oversight of proper governance about what these companies do with our data. Um, frankly, I think the latest showing on part of the U.S. Congress and, and the European Parliament uh, interviewing Mr. Zuckerberg uh, is evidence of that. We really need to find ways to really scrutinize uh, and understand what's happening in all layers of the software stack. And our political institutions are not equipped to do that very well. Uh, I am, of course, then equally worried about government. And to be fair, not just the Chinese government, any government. And I'm happy to give you some examples. The Chinese government is, of course, now known for its social credit system, which is going to be allegedly mandatory by 2020. We'll see whether that actually happens and in what instantiation it, uh, it comes to fruition. But we have been researching this quite extensively. And currently, there are three systems in use. Uh, that uh, examine uh, really anybody's life who lives in China fairly closely and assigns points on, say, a scale of 0 to 800. And depending on where you are on that scale, that means you have more or less privileges in society. The Chinese have, in fact, the authorities have, in fact, stopped um, 11 million uh, train rides and 4.4 million or in excess thereof uh, international flights or tickets uh, for flights to be purchased by individuals with low scores. So the Chinese system has teeth, and uh, they uh, very uh, uh, readily publicize those teeth um, because they want to enforce stability in society. Uh, that's a problem uh, for anybody who uh, believes in civil liberties. And before we point fingers at China too much, let's also be honest about what's happening in the United States. Um, in the United States, we use um, uh, monitoring facial recognition, monitoring and scoring systems, uh, uh, to support, let's say, the Sheriff's Department in California uh, tracking individuals that might have been close to a crime scene. Uh, we're using uh, neural network uh, AI-type technologies in courtrooms to assess defendants' uh, bail size or volume. We're using um, predictive policing in New York uh, to understand in which neighborhoods crime is going to surface next. And while all of these technologies make sense on one side, the Sheriff's Department, for instance, in a hearing in Sacramento in California where I was speaking, said, well, it can't be that you want us to keep citizens safe. Uh, the, ba the bad guys have these technologies and we are not supposed to use them. So there is this creative tension, an honest creative tension in law enforcement and intelligence about how much of these technologies is good versus bad. So it's happening really, like I said, on both sides of the Pacific, of course, with different intentions and to different degree. I'm not trying to say China and the U.S. are uh, in the same bucket, but I think we need to monitor big, powerful players that amass a lot of smart technologies and data sets alike, no matter where we are. There is a notion that as we continue to, you know, move into uh, this era of thinking machines, you know, kind of penetrating more and more of our lives, uh, whoever has uh, accumulated the most, the maximum amount of data, 
is going to quote unquote win. So do you see the accumulation of data as being uh, you know, equivalent to the accumulation of oil or the accumulation of bullets or weaponry or you know, all the things that we have uh, uh, spent our time accumulating in the past? Yeah. in the 20th century. Yeah. Is accumulation of data going to be the next uh, next thing? And if that's the case, w- are we headed uh, to a future where it is the Chinas and the Indias and the parts of the world that have large populations with access to data generating devices? Yeah. Uh, might, might it tilt the balance of power in that direction? Yeah. We believe that uh, data and artificial intelligence generated uh, data uh, or, or data that is being made sense of through artificial intelligence is, in fact, much more tricky and potentially much more dangerous than nuclear or any kinds of physical arms uh, dealing around the world. And the reasons are manifold. Firstly, um, data and artificial intelligence can always be used for very good, sober, beneficial purposes. Uh, you know, whether it's in consumer life or, in, as we said, in education, healthcare, finance, transportation, to make our, our world better and safer. Um, but there is always that simultaneous dark side. So there is this, this uh, it's almost a, like dual use that is ingrained in very harmless applications that could possibly turn these applications into surveillance or could turn these applications to be weaponized. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is many of these applications are quite cloaked. They're uh, they're not uh, overt to the eye, to the beholder. Um, so the the monitorability, as it were, of some of these algorithms and data uh, is much lower than, let's say, the, the you know the, the, f- the physical movement of centrifuges in the nuclear instance, or or bullets or weapons uh, into foreign markets. Uh, it's easier to trace those. And then thirdly, uh, the speed with which this code is being proliferated uh, is uh, is amazing. Uh, you know, with one uh, with one push of a button, you can literally spread codes uh, into a billion households around the world, uh, and so that makes it a lot more potent uh, than uh, than physical weapons. So we do believe that that is uh, the dark underbelly of AI and data, and that needs to be monitored. So yes, that is a concern. Let me uh, take you out of the dark underbelly okay. and uh, um, go to a, a different part of the anatomy. And uh, it's unclear whether it's dark or um, uh, rosy, as it were. Uh, the introduction of these uh, thinking machines and uh, the uh, algorithms fed by data are going to encroach into every aspect of our lives, and they already are. Uh, they will prepare our coffee in the morning, and uh, they might, uh, you know, put you in a vehicle where you might continue to drink your coffee and read the news and be driven from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that point B may not be a place where you work. Uh, you may not need to work because machines are doing, you mm-hmm. know, much of the work. Yeah. So, long-winded way of asking the question: How do you see uh, uh, the balance between uh, human convenience? and uh, human ingenuity and uh, human uh, labor uh, uh, being governed, modulated, displaced, enhanced by all this data and uh, the thinking machines. Is it going to be a net positive or negative, or is it going to be a, you know, something some a bit of a mix. I believe eventually it's going to be a net positive, but it will take us some time to get there and it's the intervening period that I'm concerned about because policymakers and even large corporate executives, you know, from the C-suite to human resources, 
uh, are not devoting a lot of time and energy uh, to defining new job profiles, uh, new types of tasks that are innately human as we compete with machines uh, for uh, productive time. Because I think that this digital technology can enhance who we are. It can give us greater purpose. It can focus us on more creativity, imagination. You know, there are so many skills, so many capabilities that humans have that machines cannot replicate right now. I just mentioned a few. Creativity is a little bit iffy, hard to define. Imagination is hard to define, but it is an inherently human capability as well. Visioning, theory development, planning. Uh, even strategy, uh, which, you know, in some sense is theory development about how to get from point A to point B. Uh, humans can do that on multiple levels, multiple timelines, all at the same time. A machine cannot develop uh, theory or strategy. It can simply calculate much faster than, than we can. Um, things like uh, motivating, uh, inspiring, coaching, mentoring, teaching, all those, counseling, all those are activities that humans are able to do with other humans because we share uh, a large genetic, a large portion of genetic code. We uh, literally crawled out of the primordial slime together, as it were, uh, or at least our ancestors did, and we have that genetic commonality ingrained in us. So we understand when somebody experiences success and failures, you know, love and heartbreak, uh, because it's part of a common and shared human uh, condition. Machines don't yet have that capability. Now you can project forward and say in 50 or 70 years, will we have a Blade Runner type world in which there are replicants that can actually experience memories and feelings uh, and, and, and the like. Um, and most scientists will tell you that's really a very, very long range version. We're nowhere close to that. And we also shouldn't let that blind us from uh, the shorter to medium term. In the short to medium term, these are skills that I just named that help us to be more defensible, help us integrate with machines that have very linear capabilities uh, of analyzing, pattern recognizing, making recommendations that are fundamentally different from how the human brain functions. Right? Uh, a good friend of mine whom we interviewed for the book, Patrick Wolf, who is a U.S. chess grandmaster um, uh, of the top league around the world, um, has said when, you know, the, the era of humans beating chess computers uh, is over. It, it will never come back. The machine will always be faster and will eventually win. You have probably seen AlphaGo Zero uh, go up against not just the top Go uh, player in the world, but the top 50 all at the same time and beating each one of them in parallel. Uh, but he says, when you pair a Go player or a chess player with a chess computer, that's like watching gods play because uh, the machine's raw processing power and learning capability based on what it sees empirically, and then uh, predicting some promising moves com compared or integrated with the human capability of visioning and of developing these theories about how to create a winning image on the board, that is a deadly combination that he thought was never really possible. He sees moves that he never thought possible uh, and uh, or, or reasonable. And I think that's the future of humanity, integrating with machines, letting them play to their strength, integrating with our strength, not competing head to head. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where we need to go. In the meantime, I'm worried because, you know, every, I see a lot of people talking about this, very few people actually getting on top of this. Um, and uh, that includes the United States, right? You interact with students on a regular basis because you're a professor and uh, uh, you are preparing people who are going to be going off into the world and uh, you are also a futurist so in many ways you help them think about you know the world that they are likely to inhabit 
and and shape. So 2035, you know, a few years out, uh, how would you describe it to your students? Hmm. I would describe it to my students in that I would say, uh, undertake some backcasting. Imagine the future the, the way you want it to unfold. Uh, and then uh, chart a path that will make that future happen. So if you ask yourself, this is a world in which X, Y, Z, you know, my life functions in this way, society works in this way, politics works in this way, then decide what's the path into the future that will actually make that happen and pursue that path collectively. Get together in the form of, as we called it, a a multi-stakeholder form, a Cambrian Congress, chart things like the digital Magna Carta, but chart governance regimes that will actually help you shape the world you want to see. Well, Olaf Grote, such a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Bhaskar. Always great to be back. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And to be the first to hear about new episodes, please follow Tufts University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Stefan Hacker, Anna Miller, Dave Nusher, and Katie McLeod Strollo. Anna Miller edited this episode, and Heather Stevenson wrote the introduction. Web production and editing support provided by Taylor McNeil. Special thanks to the Fink Distinguished Alumni Speaker Series, Shelley Corcoran, and Brad Maycumber. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music, and my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well. <laughs>